This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Utility Inc., the innovative technology-enabled service provider recognized for creating groundbreaking digital systems for frontline professions in effectively collecting, analyzing, and managing digital media evidence. You're listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, thanks for listening. Shifting gears a little bit for this segment on Policing Matters, I recently had a chance to meet Nancy Rommelman to talk about politics in San Francisco during the district attorney recall. Now, I want to give an advisory that this show is going to be a little bit different than other shows in that we are talking about uh, Ms. Rommelman's experience in interviewing John Wayne Gacy, that heinous, uh, murderous criminal. Um, and so we, it, it might venture into some things that, that are not, uh, you know, conversation at an at a open restaurant or something like that. Uh, Nancy only afterwards did learn that she authored, <laughs> excuse me, Nancy authored several books, uh, two of went, two of them uh, dealt with murder, one about a, a woman who attempted to murder two of her uh, children, successfully murdering one. Um, she also did uh, in-depth analysis of uh, Mr. Gacy in her book, Destination Gacy, A Cross-Country Journey to Shake the Devil's Hand. Ms. Rommelman writes about her meeting and interview with one of the America's most heinous serial murderers, John Wayne Gacy. The online description sums it up as, in 1994, journalist Nancy Rommelman accompanied Rick Gates, a 26-year-old pen pal of John Wayne Gacy, on a road trip from Los Angeles to Illinois to visit the serial killer before his execution. Along the way, she took the moral temperature of people on college campuses, in bars, in churches, asking how they felt about Gacy and his being sentenced to death for the torture and murder of 33 young men and teenage boys. She writes, shackled in a tiny visiting room on death row, Gacy nevertheless turned on the charm, chatty, slick, acting the father figure, albeit one who wants to know a little bit too much about your sex life. Gacy offered his hand and said, ask anything you want. I'm not ashamed of anything I've ever done. Wow. <laughs> Welcome to Policing Matters, Nancy Rommelman. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it was great meeting uh, you and talking with you in San Francisco and your visit there. I've since picked up To the Bridge, A True Story of Motherhood and Murder, uh, the other book that I talked about. Can't wait to get into that. Um, you've been across the country, New York, Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, and all points in between. Your writings have mostly been about human interest stories, um, taking temperature of themes and politics. This is a different one for you, is it not? Why did you get into what, what? I don't want to say, I guess I do. What possessed <laughs> you to write about John Wayne Gacy? Well, uh, at the time, I had never actually written a long article before. I was 30 years old. I had just started writing. I'd written like a few tiny little pieces. And a friend said, you remember that that guy, Ricky Gaez? We went to a party at his house. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I lived in LA at the time. He said, well, he's pen pals with John Wayne Gacy, who is on uh, set to be executed in a couple of months. And he got on Gacy's pen pal on his um, visitors list. And he thinks it would make an interesting story. I'm like, I think that would make an interesting story. 
So I am, you, you know, the way you work in journalism is you sell the story, you sell the idea, you don't write it first. So I sold the idea. And then um, this guy I'd never met. <laughs> I mean, I'd met him. I didn't know him. We got in a car and we, we started driving across the country to, um, to interview Gacy. And I, I guess I had pretty good uh, kind of writing instincts. Like, how am I going to tell this story? Because if you think about it, Jim, like we, of course, of course, Gacy is is guilty of these unbelievably horrific crimes. But the reason he was such a sort of, I hate to say it, but this sort of like nationwide sensation is because we were paying attention to him. I mean, like why, you know, anybody out of the Chicago area didn't need to know about this dude, right? He was caught, he was on death row, like goodnight. But no, we had this fascination as people do um, with murder. So everybody had an interesting opinion and they were all different opinions. And so that sort of... Um, kind of formed the body of the work until we actually got, you know, to, uh, to death row, to the prison in Menard, Illinois with, with Casey. Yeah. And what was that like? Um, I guess it's not like going through TSA at the airport. No. So what's interesting, it's really was this old uh, maximum security prison. It, it reminded me of sort of like an old castle with like wet walls. And, and um, you know, they weren't like so thrilled to let us like see Gacy. They actually made us wait like four or five days. I didn't, we didn't know if we were going to get in. That's part of the piece, I believe. And um, when we finally got in, we were like sitting in a room waiting with some other like literally death row groupies. Um, if people read the piece, there's like a woman in a, in a completely see-through mesh top you know, just with these giant bosoms. And she's telling us like what John Wayne, John, you know, get Gacy candy. He's got a sweet tooth. And because she would come to visit this other guy, John uh, on death row every week or whenever they came. Um, we, when we went in, we had to go up this through sort of this like winding kind of, it literally felt like being inside of some old castle, but, but prisoners windows could apparently see us because this howling began this like, ooh, ooh. Ooh, because I was a woman, I guess, right? And then when we got there, it was um, there were six visiting rooms, tiny little hall. We walked into the front area. There was a guard sitting there. Um, he let us in. We walked down a very small, narrow hall. We walked into a room. There was no plexiglass, no anything, just a like a like a little school table, not like maybe like the one I'm sitting at now, like three by five. And uh, Rick and I sat on one side. They brought Casey in. He was shackled. Um, his, you know, handcuffs were shackled to his waist and his ankles were cuffed and he sat down and we, we sat with him for many hours. And as I've said before, I mean, this was in 1994. If it were up to John Wayne Gacy, we'd still be sitting there talking because he just wanted to talk. He just wanted to talk. It was the John Wayne Gacy show. And we were now these sort of, you know, this captive audience. And this was about three weeks before he was executed. So I guess in some ways you can understand with his sort of um, his personality characteristics, this very garrulous, somewhat charismatic, um, you know, everybody's Uncle Johnny kind of personality. He just wanted it. He just wanted to kind of eat us up. So um, so we sat there and, uh, and finally after about, I, I actually think it was about five hours, we, um, we dipped out of there. So. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there there is a fascination with these guys. Um, you know, I know uh, when the series, the Netflix series, Mindhunters came out, uh, I had students coming up to me asking me, you know, barraging me with these questions about, are they really like this? I, the closest I've ever come to a, an actual serial killer was uh, Richard Ramirez. And, you know, I, I hesitate because I don't like naming these guys. We, we sure. uh, have a 
policy of not naming uh, active shooters or mass shooters. In this case, these guys are already famous. I mean, everybody knows their names. And uh, I could I could sense this feeling of dread and creepiness about this guy being, I think the closest I came was about 10 or 15 feet. He was in a cell across from um, someone I was going up to interview. And, but it was... It was palpable. You could feel it. You could you could smell it. I was wondering what was your visceral reaction when you actually met this guy and you shook his hand. Oh sure, yeah. Um, he was, as I've said, I think I may have even said it in the piece. He looked about as intimidating as your local dry cleaner. Okay, he was like kind of a doughy guy, a uh, white guy, you know, kind of plump. Uh, very smiley, very charming. Um, the sense I got from him, you know, I've written about a lot of sort of these, what I term the charming sociopaths since this was my first, but the sense I got, which is really carried through with other people I've written about, these kinds of folks, they do understand right from wrong, right? But they, what we don't know as the stupid little people is that they are allowed to do these things, right? We're not, but they are. Um, I also think um, there was actually quite a good uh, documentary recently about Gacy. There have not been very many because really, I, I got to tell you, I think besides a journalist for The New Yorker, he not, did not give interviews to journalists, period. So um, uh, this was about Gacy tapes that hadn't been played before. Um, he he obviously had a, had a very, very, very sick mania. Um, for murdering. But that definitely, he did not admit that to us at all. It was all like, ah, oh, no, nah, nah. you know, kids, look, look, it could have been a lot of people. I had, you know, I had, an, I had a housekeeper, could have been her. She could have put the bodies there. I mean, it's just so patently ridiculous. Um, but he just was very, uh, I can't say he was creepy. Now, I, readers, I mean, listeners will have to read the piece to see how there was a little twist on that at the end. Um, mm. I think he was also very, very much the provocateur. He wanted to like get secrets from you. He wanted juicy stuff. He wanted to know about our sex life. He wanted to like, you know, he wanted to appear charming. Um, and I do wonder, obviously I was, thank God, not one of the people that he lured into his basement. I'm sure he was very charming with these boys uh, until, you know, and then that's how he got them. That's how he caught them. You know, so yeah, yeah, and uh, you mentioned uh, you know sociopaths and and psychopaths, right? No empathy. They can no. you know tell you a boldface lie to your face, and they believe it, right? They believe whatever they're telling you, and so so he didn't tell you anything about uh, no no admission of guilt. No, and you know Rick Gaez, who'd been his pen pal for a number of years, kind of thought you know you can tell me, um, but he didn't. And what I was really surprised about, I did not know when I wrote this piece, is that Gacy did at one point admit, and it, it's in the show. The um, he did admit it was, um, I think it was some sort of psychiatrist that was sent by the prison. This was just at the beginning, and he admitted what he did. Hmm. Um, but then he took it back, and then he never admitted it again, at least not. Um, publicly, maybe, I don't know, to some other prisoners that I have no idea. But um, yeah, he, uh, he, you know, I don't know if sociopaths don't know if they're lying. I, again, I think that they're just like, I get to do what I want. I get to play with you. I don't care. And, and I also don't think they remember their lies. I mean, when I was a kid, my dad told me not to lie, not just because it was wrong, but because it's too hard to remember what you said, you know, you'll, you sociopaths will tell you a bold face, will tell you a lie. And when you call them on it later, they'll just say, Oh, I, ne I never said that. 
it's like what they lie about the lie exactly they lie about the lie well i think the the evidence in court presented was irrefutable clearly uh he got the death penalty and he was executed um 29 bodies found under his house and another few uh in a river nearby um i want to i want to ask you about uh, anything that he might have said or, or something that indicated to you that he was um, maybe not consciously revealing um, guilt, but that he he did implicate himself. But I want to get back to that in a minute. First, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Utility provides a universe of intuitive solutions for effectively capturing, analyzing, managing, and sharing video evidence. Technologies include a variety of cameras, sensors, devices, as well as situational awareness software solutions for law enforcement, first responders, transportation agencies, and utility providers. To learn more about utility and its technology solutions, visit utility.com. That's U-T-I-L-I-T-Y dot com. And we're back and I'm speaking with author Nancy Rommelman about her book, Destination Gacy, A Cross-Country Journey to Shake the Devil's Hand. So again, this guy murders 33 people. He's got this public persona. He dresses up like a clown. I mean, that is like just so creepy in itself. And and he gets caught. But, you know, 29 people are buried under his house. How is it that we missed it? What did police miss um, in this guy uh, hiding in plain sight? Well, so the people that were disappearing were young men and boys, not boys like 12, but like 16, 17, 18 years old. And, you know, some of them were like cruising through, you know, they're coming to a big city, coming to Chicago or whatever. A few of them were were sex workers. And, you know, these people were sort of lost in the cracks sometimes. So, you know, a family, let's say a guy, I, I, I'm just kind of making up these details, but let's say, you know, someone comes from Idaho and, and he comes to Chicago and he winds up with Gacy and the family has been out of touch and they're looking for him, but they can't find him. And he just disappears. This happened with a lot of young men for a long time. Families were, you know, some more concerned, some less. I I don't know. But the reason he was eventually caught is because he got a young boy, very like upstanding boy. It was his mother's birthday that day. He was supposed to come home for her birthday. And he'd been hanging out with this girl. They both worked at this drugstore and she was wearing his jacket and there was this ticket. It's, it's, you have to watch the, uh, the, uh, the, the Gacy documentary, but the parents were so overwrought. And the girl had seen John Wayne Gacy in the store and knew her boyfriend. They just started to put the pieces together. So the police now started to zero in, started to zero in. Gacy, you have to remember, not only did he dress up as a clown at, and, you know, um, and, uh, and, and, and cheer up sick children, which is just insane. Um, but he also was, a, he was a, um, Uh, not a delicate, but he was very active in the Democratic Party. There are pictures of him with Rosalind Carter, Jimmy Carter's wife. You know, he was sort of something of a pillar of the community. Um, He was a contractor and, and, you know, everybody knew the guy. So even when the police started, the circle started closing, um, he was like, what are you talking about? Like they knew him. Um, But then it started to get closer and closer and he'd have to show up for something and he didn't show up Then he did. And he was like covered in mud. His car was covered in mud and it was just too many things. And then he kind of went on the run. 
Um, it didn't last very long at all, um, but they caught him. Um, I, I think it is sadly, I mean, I think we could probably look at a lot of these people that kill, um, you know, young people also run away. I mean, you've heard these stories. People are like, I can't, I can't find my son. And they're like, oh, he's 18. He'll come home. Well, they weren't coming home and it just, it just, it lasted a while. So. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of sad. And it's a, it's a familiar story in San Francisco. I mean, we get so many runaways from all over the country and even internationally. I know, you know, the NCMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children really do a good job of, of um, uh, publicizing these missing kids that maybe aren't really uh, championed by anybody else, a family member. Um, yeah, that's a controversy in America today. Who gets the attention um, when that's they turn right. up missing? That's right. So nothing. So you, no clues, no, no, um, no tips on what we should be looking out for in terms of the, our next serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, I, you know, you, people have to trust their instincts. If people are are being too charming with you you know, be careful. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think, uh, who is it? Gavin, um, what was his name? He wrote that book, The Gift of Fear. Oh, uh, goodness. I'll, I'll find it. I'll send you the link. Uh, you know, he's like, you know, there was the, he writes this story about how a woman is letting herself into an apartment building. Then there's a guy like, oh, hey, looks like you've got a hungry cat in there because his cat food is, let me help you. And she just keeps like ignoring her instincts, which she should have paid attention to. But she, I mean, she wound up saving her own life. Um, I don't, I, I'm sure there is the next John Wayne Gacy out there right now. Um, so I, I wish I had the solution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we, sometimes we do, we do see people in society that are troubled and I mean, oftentimes it's, it's not appealing. So we turn away. Right. And I want to ask you a little bit about your other, your other book to the bridge, a true story of motherhood and murder. And I have to tell you that we had something similar in San Francisco, probably around 2003 or four, where a woman who had been in and out of um, mental uh, health facilities took three of her own children and threw them into San Francisco Bay, and none of them survived. And when I it happened in my district, and when I got the phone call, um, you know, I, it was it was like not reality when I heard my desk officer say, yeah, Cap, you got to get down here. They just, this woman just threw her three kids into the bay. And I said, are you sure? Are you sure they weren't like dolls or something? And he says, no, I, I'm pretty sure. So I run down there and we set up a command post for three days working with the Coast Guard and, and other agencies, uh, shorelines and in the water. But, you know, San Francisco Bay is about 52 degrees. And uh, the, the expectancy of, of life after being in that water um, diminishes considerably after about 30 minutes or so, probably less. And so uh, two of the children were recovered. And then we, we do the look into the background of the woman. And of course, she had the history. And we see that so much today in active shooters that there are precursors. Yeah. Uh, there are indications, things that maybe we're either ignoring or we're not um, you know, exploring enough. Tell us a little bit about your book. Sure. So this was a woman named Amanda Stott Smith, May 23rd, 2009. She took her two of her children. She had four children altogether, um, a seven-year-old girl, Trinity, 
four-year-old boy, Eldon, and she took them to one of the many bridges in Portland, Oregon, and she she threw them over. Um, Eldon died very quickly, um, hit the water hard and drowned. Um, Trinity saved her own life. She screamed and screamed, 53 degree water, screamed and screamed and screamed, help me, help me, help me. And um, some good Samaritans um, who lived on a houseboat went out, um, found her, got her in the boat. And, um, and also found Eldon at the same time and put him in the boat. Police were already waiting on the shore. Um, she survived. Uh, their mother was caught later that morning. Um, I instantly uh, became fascinated with this story because like you, it's like, how does this happen? I needed to know how this happened. And of course, uh, when a mother kills her children or endangers her children, we say no. We say, absolutely not. That's not what mothers do. And so it's easier for us to say she's either crazy or she's evil. Lock her up. Goodbye. Good night. We don't want to hear anything more about it. But I just did not think that that satisfied my need to know. So I started reporting on it the day after it happened. And I was very fortunate. Her defense attorney, capital defense attorney, because we do have the um, death penalty in Oregon. I don't live in Oregon anymore, but I did at the time. Um, he was he was he was happy with me to for me to hang around. And um I wound up working on that book for seven years. One reason being, not because I, I, I mean, I had other work I was doing too at the same time, but because it takes a very, very long time to get people to talk to you about the hardest thing that ever happened in their lives. There is a sociopath in this story as well. And spoiler alert, it's not the mother. Um, it also, as as you may know, it takes a very long time for, for sometimes for police departments to give you the information that you need because it's not in their interest. Um, but but most of the departments were pretty good. Um, I did get I did finally get everything I needed, sort of a little bit of it uh, out of the back door, let's say. Um, and um, the story was complicated. And my 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 biggest first of all, I wrote I wrote the book I wanted to write and that I wanted to read. And I would say the biggest compliment I get on that book, and I would I would absolutely love your listeners to buy it, came out in 2018. It's on Amazon, um, is when people say to me, I never thought, there's no way I thought I could understand how something like this happens. But then I read your book and I, I did understand. And also I don't lead you any to any one conclusion. I, I let you just look at the pieces like I did and say, okay, okay, now now I can understand how a mother could could seek to kill her children. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're both true stories. And um, I know you, you're a people person. You like talking to people and getting background. And you refer to that in the Gacy book. And it sounds like you did that as well with... Uh, with the Portland, Oregon book. What do you find from talking to people? I mean, are, everybody's got an opinion, right? There's some adage about that that I don't think I'll dig up right yeah. now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, everybody's got an opinion. So what, what did that kind of background do? How did that add to your story? Well, of course it does. It, it, this is, it, it is part of the story. It's completely, uh, every story is prismatic, right? It depends where you, I remember my parents showing me this movie when I was little called Rashomon, which is a Kurosawa, I believe. And it's like there, a murder happens and like four or five people see it and everybody has a different story. Well, what's the truth, right? Well, it depends on where you're standing. And, and, I, and I even say that at the end of the book, like depending on what end of the tube you're looking in, you know, my being here and telling this story is exactly the right thing to do or exactly the wrong thing to do. Because of course, let me tell you, when you're writing about a murdered child, there are a lot of people that are not happy about this, okay? They're like, who are you? Get the heck out of here, blah, blah, blah. Um, so everybody's position is valid. The people that aren't talking to you, 
they're still telling you the story. And I, I, you know, there, there's never enough voices, let them all in the room. And then the story tells itself to you. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a story today. I talked to four different people today about like one particular um, aspect of what's going on. And, uh, it, and, and it's all the story, all of it's the story. Yeah. I mean, we, we're starting to move more into victim informed and, and, and thinking about the victim more than just the crime and getting some more background, but you know, I mean, like you say, we're law enforcement's limited in scope and time. And, they're, sure. you know, the minute they take somebody into custody, the deadline begins. Right. And so uh, a lot of times it, it there is a, a, a version of dragnet that happens. Just the facts. Right. No opinions. Don't want to hear the stories. So uh, no rush to judgment, but gather the facts, uh, gather the evidence and then present it to the district attorney for prosecution. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally understand, um, your version of, uh, adding depth and color to the crimes by, by talking to the surrounding people. I think that's, that's something we don't do in, in law enforcement. Um, and, you know, I'm sure a lot of it wouldn't be admissible in court if we did. Well, we have different jobs. I, I I don't do the job you do. You don't do the job I do. I will say that when I did finally get the police reports that I needed, it was about 500 pages because lots of different detectives were on different parts of it. And man, were they working fast. I mean, you know, because there's like, you know, one was like in Tualatin, which is just a little south of Portland. And one was over here where there was like, I'm going to this house. It was incredible. And of course, I had never seen um, policing that granular. And it was, I mean, it was an in invaluable bunch of documents that I got. I could not have finished the book without these. And then I really owe that to the police work. It doesn't matter that they don't do the job I do. That's fine. But having that material is, was, was absolutely crucial for me to be able to finish telling this story. So I, I so I'm grateful. I'm very grateful to the Portland police department, even though most of them wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you've also um, written several features for publications. Um, I've seen you in the New York Times. What's next for you? What are you writing about? What what can our readers look forward to? From well, that? I would love if they want to go on Amazon and buy Destination Gacy or To the Bridge. I would love that. Um, I have a podcast. Which we're about two months old now called Smoke 'Em If You Got 'Em over on uh, Substack. I do that with a journalist named Sarah Hepla in Dallas, and um, we're really talking about the issues of the day. I think the tagline is something like two journal babes on what's burning down the culture right now," and we're loving it. And people really seem to enjoy it because we're really addressing like what's happening now, whether it's you know. Depp Heard case or whether it's uh, Roe versus Wade. And it's very conversational. It's pretty funny too, some of it. Um, so if you want to go over there and subscribe, you can subscribe for free or you can throw some change at us. I would love that. Um, I'm writing for a bunch of publications right now. I'm writing a story right now about the impact um, small business owners, what inflation is doing to, to them, like right on, you know, pancaking on top of the pandemic. I'm writing that for a site called Common Sense and just writing, you know, that's, that's all I do. Get up in the morning, start working. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks. Great talking to you and um, look forward to reading your next piece and to the bridge. I have it myself. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Hey, and to our listeners, I hope you enjoyed hearing about the uh, Nancy Rommelman books about John Wayne Gacy, the um, heinous murderer from the Chicago, Illinois area, and also the To the Bridge story, a true story of motherhood and murder. 
And again, you can find them on Amazon or uh, we'll put the link to Ms. Rommelman's uh, webpage. Thanks for listening to the show. Let me know who you'd like to hear about and from and uh, drop me a line at policingmatters at police1.com. That's policingmatters at police1.com. Hey, stay safe and I hope to be talking to you again real soon. Take good care. <laughs>